Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri. And I'm Claire McCaskill. We're the hosts of the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024. We both know firsthand that winning an election is hard. And having been in and around tough races for most of our adult lives, we have some unique insights into what it will take to win this 2024 election. And some crazy stories to share, too. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you're listening and follow. New episodes every Thursday. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. This week, we will be talking about all the latest from legal Trump land, including him facing some accountability in court for his reckless taunts, also a Georgia gerrymandering ruling, and how map rigging is impacting democracy more broadly than you think, and also yellow flag laws. We've been thinking a lot about that since the horrific events in and around Lewiston, Maine. So we're going to get into that. And as always, we will look forward to answering your questions at the end of the show, which is our favorite part of the show. But first, I want to kick off a little bit. You know, the other day, I really felt like it was autumn because I cooked collard greens and sweet potatoes. Listen, collards and yams, and I do know that there's a difference between yams and sweet potatoes, but that that flavor combination to me says autumn, you know, the 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 savory bitterness of the collard greens mixed with the, you know, uh, uh, aromatic sweetness of sweet potatoes. There's nothing like it. And you can't eat that in August. You can't eat that in, you know, in March. That is an October meal, right? <laughs> and it, it just, it was such comfort food in autumn. And it made me want to ask you guys now that it's fully autumn, the leaves are changing, the, well, the temperatures are cooler a little bit. It's still in the 80s here in DC. But what comfort foods do you like this time of year? What about you, Barb? Well, I know it's fall when Panera Bread starts serving their butternut squash soup, which I love. I love that. Isn't that so good? I love butternut squash. Yeah, I'm such a sucker for that. If it's on the menu anywhere, I will always order it. It's such a fall flavor and it's so delicious. And and when it comes to cooking, something I don't cook any other time of year, but I make chili in the fall. And uh, last weekend, my husband said, you know what it's cold enough for? Chili. <laughs> I said, you're right. So we made chili and that was delicious. But same thing. It's, it's definitely a, a, feels like fall. The leaves are turning. Time for chili. What about you, Jill? Well, first of all, I have to say, I agree with both things that Barb said. For me, fall is definitely time for making soup and chili and casseroles or the shepherd's pie from HelloFresh. I mean, it's really an amazing thing to do the soup. But I have to disagree with you because I love garnet sweet potatoes. And they're not available everywhere. 
but they are amazingly tasty and sweet. And I eat them. I just bake them in the microwave and I eat them all year. They are the best. I recommend everyone try garnet sweet potatoes. I mean, I like sweet potatoes all year too, I, but the combination yeah. of collard greens and sweet potatoes for me are a very fall meal, right? Sounds fall to me. <laughs> what do you think, Joyce? You know, um, I, I guess I'm the sister who loves to bake, but in summer, it's really too hot to run my oven down here. So the thing for me about fall is it's time to start baking again. I made this really wonderful cardamom cake. Um to celebrate the start of fall. And now I'm thinking about all of the things that I can bake using pumpkin. I, I grabbed some sugar pumpkins and I'm getting ready to cook them. And I will um, be planning on doing a lot of baking for the next few weeks. We can all use a little bit of comfort from our kitchens right now. Absolutely. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. We saw a lot of developments this week in the various cases involving Donald Trump. I think the most significant development was probably the guilty plea by lawyer Jenna Ellis in Georgia. She's the fourth defendant to plead guilty in that 19-defendant RICO case. Jenna Ellis, of course, was one of the lawyers on Trump's so-called elite strike force that went around the country challenging election results. She was there at the Four Seasons landscaping press conference with Rudy Mm. Giuliani and Sidney Powell and others. So, um, Kim, I want to ask you about this plea deal. One of the things she agreed to do as part of her plea deal is to testify against co-defendants. How do you think her testimony can be useful to Fannie Willis and her team? Yeah, I think it could be very useful. And I know a lot of our listeners ask questions about this this week. So I think it could be very useful. Um, Of course, Jenna Ellis was a part of the legal team that was actively pushing these bogus, I'm using air quotes when I say legal theories, trying to support (laughs) the overturning of election results, not just in Georgia, but in multiple states and at least a half dozen states, uh, trying to urge lawmakers to reject the results of the popular vote in those states and try to instead 
overturn the election by uh, urging them to uh, cast their electoral votes in favor of Donald Trump in states that Joe Biden won. And she was a key part of this post-election legal team uh, that was crafted to do that. So I think the fact that she was working closely with people like Rudolph Giuliani is terrible news for him uh, in this because they she she wrote uh she was writing um uh, mem- memorandum. She was in, uh, as you said, she was present for a lot of the spewing of the misinformation that led to this. But she also, uh, it's pretty clear that she used purely, I don't know, just, just the- theories pulled out of thin air, false statements about even her own background to create enough fog um, to create enough noise of misinformation and then use that as the basis of more information to create enough uncertainty to make people distrust the election results. And I think that uh, Fonnie Willis will do a better job of putting that to jurors than just about anybody. Now, while I think that her testimony is going to be most damaging to all of the other co-defendants, including Rudy Giuliani, I think that it's bad for Trump too. She may have been a little more removed from Donald Trump himself, but the one thing that she definitely did was serve as someone who he listened to when it came to these, um, I don't know, kooky <laughs> Forgive the legal. Is that a new legal term? These kooky yeah. legal Some theories. Black's law dictionary. Kooky. Correct. Kooky legal theories that she came up with. He relied on that, and in part in her statement, it seemed that she was hedging a little bit. Like even she herself was trying to say, "I relied on attorneys who were." Oh yeah, more, that was so weenie. I wouldn't yeah, have put that as prosecutor. More, more experienced you know, than me. Ex- I'm just a little girl. Exactly. Yeah, she's crying. But I should have done my due diligence. Listen, the standard is recklessness. So if she was reckless, it doesn't matter if she was relying on other people and keeping her head in the sand. That still makes her liable. And if she was being reckless at the same time that there were other attorneys, such as the Attorney General of the United States, that told Donald Trump that this was not a a real legal theory. White House counsel who told Donald Trump that there was no there there. If she was still being reckless, that does not absolve her, her from liability. But more importantly, it really blows a big hole in Donald Trump's biggest defense, which is, I was just listening to the advice of attorneys. The more attorneys specifically among the co-defendants who plead and say they lied, which at the end of the day, she could have couched it however she did in open court in her apology. But at the end of the day, she lied, she admitted to lying, and she is now convicted of doing so. So that's terrible news for Donald Trump too. Yeah, I think that's right. Jill, what do you think of these plea deals? Now, Jenna Ellis pled to a felony, but not Rico. Uh, She was allowed to plead guilty to a conspiracy to commit false statements. Um, And so far, these four defendants who were charged with Rico are pleading to either misdemeanors or felonies with no prison time. Does that make sense to you? It does. And before I give a fuller answer to that, I just want to say that Donald Trump has also eviscerated his argument about relying on lawyers' advice because his first reaction to Jenna Ellis was, she was never my lawyer. (laughs) Well, okay, if she wasn't your lawyer, you cannot say you relied on her legal advice. And to the extent that she was present 
at meetings with Rudy Giuliani, that waives the attorney-client privilege because an outsider, not your lawyer, was also there. So I think that does a lot of damage to him. And in terms of the plea deal, I do think it's fair. I do think it's a very good deal for the defendants. I, you know, during Watergate, we insisted on even our biggest witnesses, John Dean and Jeb Magruder, pleading to a felony and serving jail time. Yep. And so I think that would have been better, but there's a lot of advantages. A plea deal is, after all, a compromise. It's a negotiation. It's something that, you know, you have to do to get something. It's a trade-off. And here, first of all, you didn't have to reveal any evidence in the early trial, you know, the the two uh, who had requested a speedy trial, you would have had to put out all the evidence and shown it and shown your hand before you tried all the others. You also are getting witnesses who will testify against other people. And however good your your documents are, it's not the same as having someone tell a narrative. And so I think that the trade-off here justifies the easier plea deals. And also, it's a guaranteed conviction. Whereas if you go to trial, you know, although we think from what we know, this is a slam dunk case, there is no such thing as a slam dunk case. It only takes one juror to mean a mistrial, and then you have to retry it. And that's a big expense for the government in terms of time and money. And so I think these are, these are acceptable plea deals. Yeah, I, I think I disagree. I don't think I would offer offer these deals, and, and I'm probably just biased from my experience at the Justice Department. Like yeah. you, Jill, um, you know, it was the practice in our district to require people to plead guilty to the crime they committed, and then ask the judge for leniency, but usually, you know, like half of their sentencing guidelines range. And so a defendant in federal court charged with RICO pleads to RICO. So these strike me as quite lenient, but I I agree with you. They are getting big value for it. Maybe that's why they're getting these deep discounts. Joyce, did your, was your practice any different? I mean, my practice was yours. I'm not so sure. You know, I want to see exactly what Bonnie Willis is getting for these deals before right. I think we can evaluate them. But I will say some, something that I've learned. I spent a lot of time working with local folks here. I also worked with um, local folks in Georgia doing um, Dixie Mafia cases. And their practices are different than ours at DOJ were. Their resources are very different. Um, and I have enormous respect for state and local law enforcement folks and prosecutors. I think that they do a lot with what they have. And I think Fonnie Willis is a smart and an experienced prosecutor. So I'm willing to um, move forward on the assumption that she knows stuff about her case that I don't and that she really is doing justice um, in the best tradition of prosecutors everywhere. Yeah. Um, Joyce, I want to ask you about a different aspect of the guilty plea by Jenna Ellis. Do you think it was all influenced by the discipline proceedings in Colorado where she's licensed? You know, there in this disciplinary proceeding, she admitted to making false statements about a stolen election there back in March. Did that sort of force her hand here, you think? Yeah, I think this is such a good question, Barb. It's sort of a nuanced inside baseball question. And I think what happened is that Ellis got really good legal advice. The evidence against her was solid based on that concession, which she had to make if she didn't want to commit perjury. Colorado was going to yank her 
her license to practice law, no matter what. So she now has a deal in Georgia that spares her both prison and the additional expense of having a lawyer fight it out for her at trial. I think it was sort of a no-brainer for her to do this, and, and that's why it seemed pretty likely to me that she would go ahead and do it quickly rather than waiting for more motions practice and a trial setting in the case. And she, in fact, did it. Yeah, well, I want to turn to another topic. There was uh, another report this week that Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to Donald Trump, gave immunized testimony to a federal grand jury earlier this year. Joyce, you wrote an interesting piece in your Substack newsletter about this, pointing out that immunity deals and plea deals are two very different things. Can you explain that? Yeah, sure. I mean, I love, um, Barb, this is something we've talked about a lot, right? America is is getting a, a law degree in the process yeah. of this. It's sort of the silver lining of the Trump era. Um, people get to understand how it works. And the difference between Ellis and Meadows really actually illustrates this distinction perfectly. I'm going to start using this when I teach because it's a, a great way of looking at it. So Jenna Ellis gets indicted. She agrees to cooperate in exchange for her plea deal. If she backs out of that deal, if she doesn't continue to talk with investigators, or if she lies when she testifies, she loses her deal. She's on the hook again for the full indictment. And that's a pretty good circumstantial guarantee that she'll be truthful when she testifies, because if she doesn't, the remaining defendants will know she's lying and she'll get eviscerated on cross-examination. She'll lose her deal. She is now in a box. She has to tell the truth and she has to tell what she knows. But Mark Meadows, on the other hand, never got indicted. Um, and that's not essential to being a cooperating co-defendant. You can actually cut a deal before you get indicted. But that's not what happened with Meadows. He was compelled to testify by a grant of immunity. No deal with the government. He doesn't know if they plan to indict him or not. There are two kinds of immunity that federal prosecutors can offer you, and, and Meadows' immunity comes in the course of Jack Smith's um, prosecution in Washington, D.C. The government can either offer you use immunity, which in essence means that the government still can technically indict you. It just can't use your testimony or any evidence it derives from your testimony to prosecute you. And then there's transactional immunity, which means you don't you won't be indicted for any charges related to the topic that you've testified about. We don't know which kind Meadows got, but by giving him immunity, the government forced him to testify by removing his ability to say that he had a Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. So he's not a cooperating witness. He is far from being a cooperating witness. In fact, this signals that the government couldn't obtain his cooperation voluntarily, although they probably would have really liked to have had it, um, given what Meadows knows and what his access was like. I think in any event, Smith had to know, before he went ahead and indicted Trump, he had to know what Meadows was going to say. Was he a witness for Trump? Was he a witness against Trump? Locking him down was critical, and they appear to have gotten it the only way that they could. So that's sort of, you know, Jenna Ellis, cooperating witness, Mark Meadows, compelled to testify with immunity. Well, it's uh, it's interesting, um, and he so holds the keys to the kingdom, doesn't he? He seems like such an important yeah. witness. Jill, let me ask you your views on that. In your organized crime days, you likely squeezed henchmen and sidekicks for information about the mob boss. What testimony do you think Meadows could provide that would make him a valuable witness for Jack Smith? 
there's nothing as good as someone who was in the room, if I could quote from Hamilton. Um, and he is someone who was in the room at crucial times. He was part of the call to Georgia. He went to Georgia. He was in the White House on January 6th, adjacent to or with Donald Trump. And that testimony is essential. And as Joyce just said, you want to know before the trial whether he's going to end up being a defense witness or a prosecution witness. And so, you know, it may be that he dipped his toe in the water by giving documents, crucial documents, very important documents, but then he backed away from cooperation. And I'm not sure why. It, it actually doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But on the other hand, he didn't get indicted. So at least not at the federal level. He is indicted, of course, in Georgia. And unless he pleads in Georgia and gets a federal deal, depending on the kind of immunity he has, he could still get indicted at the federal level. Mm -hmm. And I think he is really a key witness. I think he is someone who just knows a lot of details of Donald Trump's actions and his motives, his mindset, his knowledge, those are the kind of things that make a trial come to life. And so I think he will be a terrific witness. Um, and even if he's a hostile witness, which means you get to cross-examine him, even though you sponsor him by putting him on the stand because he is fighting, answering questions, you get to lead him. And I still think the answers he gives are going to be very, very damning to Donald Trump. Yeah, you know, just trying to get your, your head in Mark Meadows' uh, space, you know, if you're his lawyer, uh, he's an interesting character. As Jill said, he went down this road of cooperation with the January 6th House Select Committee for a little bit, and then he stopped. Uh, he was a member of Congress before he was chief of staff. Kim, what do you think is his calculus as he navigates these cases? Is it loyalty to Donald Trump? Is it avoiding a conviction? Is he concerned about protecting his own political future? I mean, what do you think is uh, the, the driving motivation for him? Yeah, that's a good question, right? I have to believe it's some sort of CYA, which <laughs> I may not even fully understand. So here's my concern, and maybe you guys can talk me off the ledge, right? I'm very concerned about Mark Meadows' credibility. I am thinking about the fact that he sort of, sort of, uh, you know, cooperated with the January 6th committee until he didn't. He put out this book that said yeah. some stuff, but not yeah. others. Remember when Donald Trump was in the hospital with COVID and he was up with all of those doctors who I don't know what all their deal was, but Mark Meadows was just like, yeah, it's going to be fine, whatever. And then he went around <laughs> the corner and told reporters that he was on death's door. I am very concerned about Mark Meadows' credibility <laughs> when it comes to this. And maybe you prosecutors can shed some light on that. I'm not sure how helpful this, this testimony will be. I hope everything y'all just said is true, but Mark Meadows, one thing we do know about him is that he is a liar. He is a bald-faced liar. Will he do it under oath? I hope not. But what does that do to his testimony here? I don't know. Well, he lied in his book. And, I, you know, there is no telling what he will do. But I can just tell you that in organized crime cases and political corruption cases, you don't find innocent victims who happen to be depositing a check at the bank when it gets robbed. 
who can be a, a totally neutral, good witness. All of the people who you have testifying are criminals. They're bad people. And juries believe them for whatever reason. So I think that with the support of documentary evidence that the government has in this case, that he will be believed. I think that you have to bring it out on direct examination, something that it seems the prosecutor failed to do in questioning Michael Cohn in the New York case. Um, It's much better if you have the person admit to lying and deal with it upfront in direct examination rather than hiding it and letting it come out on cross-examination. So that would be my advice to the prosecutors. Get it out on direct. I'll take that. That is good advice. Yeah, I've I've uh, sponsored the testimony of lying liars and yeah. uh, <laughs> horrible horrible people. Uh, what, you, what you really have to do is corroborate it with the testimony of exactly. other witnesses or yeah. documents and other things. But they can still be valuable because they can kind of explain the motivation and what was going on at the time and connect the dots and more serve as a narrator than someone you need right. to rely on to establish facts. But we'll see. I one time had a had a judge laugh at me in chambers because I had my own witness on the stand. And it just, you know, listening to all the lies he told before he got to the truth was sort of disgusting. And so I finally said to him, and now tell me about the next lie that you told to the (laughs) FBI agents. And the judge was like, I could not believe you did that, but the jury loved it. And and it's Mm -hmm. true, right? I mean, you have to be candid about who people are and what their problems are as witnesses. Yeah, and you make it clear, they're not my friend. You know, I'm not, uh, I don't like this guy, but, you know, the facts are what they are. And here he is, and he's telling you what what really happened. I I want to turn now to something I think is super interesting. That's these gag orders that have been imposed against Donald Trump in both the New York case and one of the federal cases. So Judge Engeron in the New York civil trial over the financial misrepresentations with the attorney general's case and Judge Tanya Chutkin in the federal election interference cases have both entered gag orders of varying degrees. And um, Jill, I want to ask you about first, Judge Engeron fined Donald Trump $10,000 this week for making yet another disparaging comment about his clerk. Um, What did you think about that judge's order? So let me start by he had fined him $5,000 just before that. And the $5,000 didn't get him to even take the bad posting down from his website. So he doubled it. (laughs) Unfortunately, I believe he can quadruple it. And it's still not going to stop Donald Trump because he's not paying those fines. His supporters are giving him small dollar donations to pay them. And so... That won't stop him. I think eventually he's going to have to do move the trial date up uh, even faster. I mean, this is an ongoing case right now, so I don't know how you can do that. But eventually he may have to really issue a gag order that has real teeth where Donald Trump is prevented from using social media about the trial. He can campaign all he wants because otherwise there's going to be a big problem. I wouldn't want to be in any of these judges' positions because it is really hard with a candidate for president to actually put them in jail. Even though I know that all of our listeners are going to say, of course he belongs in jail. Why is he out playing golf and campaigning? I know I've heard that from a million of my followers, and I agree with them. Why is he free to do this when any of our clients would have been jailed 
for this kind of horrible obstruction. And uh, it's contempt of court. It's really bad. And normally you would go to jail for that. But unfortunately, I do think we have to take into account that he's a candidate for president, that he is a former president. I don't think he gets any legal benefits from being the former president or a candidate. But the reality is it's hard to do. I think he's going to have to up his, Judge Angeron's going to have to up his game quite substantially. If 10 doesn't do it, then he's got to go to 50, then 150, then 500. And, you know, another comparison is in the E. Jean Carroll case. There was a huge verdict against Donald Trump. And as soon as that case was over, he redefamed her. So the the penalty this time is going to have to be, because the penalty is to stop him from doing it. And if millions didn't do it, then it's going to have to go to hundreds of millions. So I think the jury in the E. Jean Carroll case is going to be justified in penalizing him a huge, huge amount of dollars. Um, and I think eventually Judge Angeron is going to have to do the same thing. Well, Joyce, I want to ask you about the dynamics of this uh, proceeding because Judge Angeron actually put Donald Trump on the witness stand and questioned him. <laughs> and then he, and, and Trump denied it. He said, when I said that the, the person sitting next to the judge is partisan, I meant Michael Cohen, who's on the witness stand, not the clerk. And the judge found Trump's denial to not be credible. Um, what is the significance of that finding, the finding of lack of credibility? Can that be used against him in any way? And if you were Trump's lawyer, would you have allowed, have allowed him to take the stand? Yeah, so this is so interesting. I think the judge really has Trump's ticket, um, and he started punching it repeatedly, right? <laughs> this trial is going to get more and more fun to watch. Um, it's a, it's very interesting. And to be honest, Barb, I'm not 100% certain that I'm right about this, but the way I've been thinking about it, I think in this kind of a proceeding with a gag order violation, which is not criminal— the judge could have, in essence, forced Trump to take the witness stand to in, to um, question him before he imposed a penalty. But Trump made it really easy for him here, right? I mean, Trump continues to think he's the smartest guy in the room, and he can brazen it out by lying. And it was very clear that this is a lie because Trump is someone who has never hesitated to criticize Michael Cohen by name. So when he refers to the person that that um, is sitting next to the judge, it's clearly a reference to the clerk because Alina Haba has already, you know, been talking with the judge. Could you please restrict your comments that you're making to your clerk and the rolling of your eyes? Absolutely no doubt who Trump is talking about. And so he really makes it easy for the judge to make this finding. I think that the more nuanced question that you ask here is, could it be used down the road? And I think not. You typically can't use even a court ruling to show somebody has bad character. Um, And that's, I think, is really the use that this would be put to for the most part, although there could be something that happens down the road where it becomes material to show that Trump has lied in court on the witness stand in past. And then who knows? Maybe this could become relevant down the road. Certainly it is a bad look for a former president, right? Um, well, let's shift over to the federal case. <clears throat> Kim, in that case, Judge Chutkin has put a hold on her gag order while the parties file supplemental briefs as to whether the order should be stayed pending appeal. And of course, Trump, ever the opportunist, jumped right on that opportunity with more posts 
in this interim period about special counsel Jack Smith and about Mark Meadows. Um, But one really interesting thing is that the ACLU has joined the fight in favor of Trump, arguing that the order is too vague and not narrowly tailored. What do you make of that argument? Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think in sort of breaking this down helps me explain why I think that Donald Trump should be held in contempt and if he continues to make these statements should be put in jail. But let's let's back up a little bit. I really appreciate the work of the ACLU, uh, which doggedly protects First Amendment, the First Amendment rights of all of us. And it's in the name of the First Amendment that they filed this motion not to say that Donald Trump should be doing what he's doing. Let's be really, really clear. They say nothing about Donald Trump's, uh, it's not they say nothing, but this is not about Donald Trump's behavior. It's about the language of the order and the precedent that it can set, right? And so when it comes to protecting First Amendment rights in general, but particularly to Jill's point, somebody who is a public figure, someone who is a candidate for office. Uh, Courts have to be very careful in the way that they craft gag orders. And the two uh, areas that the ACLU brings up is the fact that, in their view, that the gag order is uh, vague, overly vague, and also overly broad. These are legal terms that have very specific meaning. Gag orders need to be, uh, in terms of vagueness, they need to be precisely defined and narrowly tailored to protect the judicial process. That's the standard. And what the ACLU is arguing, arguing here is that the fact that this gag order prevents Donald Trump from making certain statements that, quote, target certain individuals, they take issue with the word target. What does that mean? Does it mean just mentioning them? Does it mean just saying something about them in passing? Um, a lot of these individuals are people that he would normally talk about on in the course of the campaign. Does that mean just talking about them is targeting them? They're saying that that is too vague in this order to be constitutional. They also say it's overly broad. They said that uh, a gag order has to be the, quote, least restrictive means to accomplish the compelling interest of protecting the judicial um, system and the process here, and they're not sure that that is the case. There's a difference of standard here. There's actually a circuit split, which makes me think that this is going to go up the this appeal is going to go up the legal chain. We're going to hear from the circuits on this, and it could even go up to the Supreme Court here. Because what is the standard that you use? Is there a is it that there is a reasonable likelihood that his statements could interfere with the judicial process, or is there a substantial likelihood that his comments will uh, will tamper with the legal process? And it's unclear what the actual standard here. So while I know in my gut and I'm happy that the judge that the judges are issuing these gag orders, I wish that they will issue more. I think that it is important that the ACLU is pointing out a, an important unsettled piece of law here, which is what exactly is the standard to determine if a gag order is overly broad? And this might be the one that could, I think, get all the way to the SCOTUS. You know, I discussed this with a colleague at the law school who's a First Amendment scholar, and his view is that a gag order does not need to meet those ordinary standards for a, a, a crime would have to. Interesting. Like, like the ACLU position in a normal criminal statute certainly has to be, you know, v- vagueness is a problem, overbreadth is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, 
But he said that's different. You know, this is the, those general First Amendment principles don't apply when it comes to a gag order. The judge could completely gag the parties if she wanted to because she's an obligation to protect the integrity of the case. He can file anything he wants in the court, by the way. Right. I mean, if he thinks somebody is um, doing something wrong, he can file it in a judicial pleading. He just can't make extrajudicial statements about any of these witnesses. I, I still think, though, Kim, uh, to your point, you know, there's always this difference when you're a government actor of what you can do versus what you should do. Yes. And so even though it may be perfectly legal for her to keep the order just as it is, she could certainly appease critics and um, instill more confidence in the process if she does just do what the ACLU asks, which is just more precisely to find the word target. Yeah. And it'd be easy enough to do. And they even offer a suggestion, you know, like, yeah. um, it could be, judge, for example, <laughs> if you might want to do this. Um, if you might you know, want to copy and paste this. Yeah, exactly. Get some language. <laughs> to single out an individual for scorn or d- derision or ridicule or harassment. I think they say something like that. Like, it'd yeah. be easy enough. It'd be easy enough to do that. So It's clearly it not like the- a pro-Trump <laughs> <laughs> objection. It yeah. is an objection to uphold uh, yep. the principles of the First yep. Amendment, which again, I really appreciate. Yep. Yep. Same. Well, uh, gerrymandering is back in the news, but there's a little bit of, I I think, interesting and and maybe even good news here. Because, Barb, um, on Thursday, a court in Georgia ruled that the state legislature had drawn gerrymandered maps that violated the Voting Rights Act. Georgia now joins Alabama and South Carolina as states where this has happened recently, although Alabama's legislature refused to draw new maps that complied with the Supreme Court's dictates, forcing that case back into court. And South Carolina was just argued before the Supreme Court, and that appeared to go well for the state and poorly for people who were interested in protecting voting rights. Can you start us out by talking a little bit about the basis for the ruling in Georgia and whether it's similar to these other two cases or different? Yeah, so in Georgia, the challenge was brought to the redrawing of these district lines that uh, the allegation was discriminated against Black voters. And the test under the law, this, it would be a violation of Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. There's a case called Thornburg versus Jingles, one of my favorite case names. And it lists out a number of factors that the court should consider to decide whether that's the case. And looking at all those factors, what the court found is that they did something that's known as uh, packing and cracking. And so in one district, for example, they packed together all the black voters and drew the line around there so that there'd be, you know, just this one district with black voters. And then they cracked the other communities that had black voters and spread them around in a bunch of different districts to dilute their voting power. And so in that way, even though the population of Georgia in the past 10 years has gone up by half a million black voters, um, the districts hadn't, hadn't changed as a result of that. And so the judge found that this did violate the Voting Rights Act by dis- discriminating against voters on the basis of race. And Kim wrote an interesting piece in her column in the Boston Globe about this, about how gerrymandering is in this very curious position where it's permissible if it is based on political reasons. Like, we want to just dilute all the Democrats. That's okay under the law because the Supreme Court has said that's a political question that courts can't handle. Um, you know, boy, that's uh, th- that's an odd one. Um, but 
it is still legally prohibited to gerrymander on the basis of race. Uh, but as Kim pointed out, the tricky part of all of this is if you look at the Venn diagram based on racial gerrymandering and political gerrymandering in Georgia, um, it's a perfect circle because those Venn diagrams perfectly overlap. Um, but uh, but here, the the state was arguing that this was all political gerrymandering, but the court found it was racial gerrymandering. And for that reason, uh, struck down these maps and said they have to redraw them by December 8th. So I have a fun inside baseball fact here because this was something that bothered me about this opinion um, last night when I was looking it over. I don't know if you noticed this. This is an opinion that's signed off by only one judge. And ironically, it's it's Judge Steve Jones, the same judge who had been considering the Trump Mm -hmm. removal issues. But Mm -hmm. typically when you see these gerrymandering cases, they go to a three-judge panel for a decision and then straight up to the Supreme Court. This case was only in front of Judge Jones, and here's the reason. This is hyper-technical legal stuff, possibly only interesting to me, so I apologize for being unduly nerdy. But because typically you get a three-judge panel by statute when you bring constitutional claims in a gerrymandering case, that's why we almost always see these going to three-judge panels. Here, there are only Voting Rights Act claims that are brought in, Mm -hmm. sort of unique to the nature of this case. So it does just go to that one judge and, and sort of changes how this case works from what we've seen in both South Carolina and Alabama. We'll see if that makes any difference down the road. But I thought it was sort of a, a fun flag, and, and now we're all better educated. Um, and speaking of that, Jill, what happens next? We've got this ruling from Judge Jones that Barb's has explained. Is there any urgency to proceeding further and drawing new maps? There definitely is, and he has given them a deadline to do it, which I hope is enough time. And my one concern is that the legislature is not returning until like the week before the deadline. So although they've had plenty of warning and knew this was coming, it's still a short time period. And the urgency is that the in the past, people have gotten away or legislatures have gotten away with using old maps because it's too close to the election to draw a new map. And if they postpone this any, then the qualifying deadlines are going to be passed and they're going to be stuck using a map that clearly denies black voters the representation that their numbers have earned them. The white population has diminished. The black population has increased. And so it should be reflected, as the judge said, by adding a large number of uh, districts for U.S. congressional maps and for the state legislative Senate and House maps. So the urgency is simply that the elections are coming and it has to be drawn before we can have a free and fair election. Yeah, I I mean, that's the problem, right? In Alabama, in the last House of Representatives um, race, the old illegal maps were used because of this timing issue. Right now, it's very clear based on census data that there should be an additional district in each of Alabama, South Carolina, and Georgia where Black voters have an opportunity to elect the candidates of their choice. That probably means Democrats. And so with a slender um, majority in the House of Representatives right now, I think it's five votes. Kim, am I close? Five vote majority. Yeah, five. Mm-hmm. Um, 
those three seats start to look really, really important as 2024 looms, um, which to that point, Kim, right, these gerrymandered maps have a real impact. Um, you've pointed out to me earlier this week that the new Speaker of the House is the product of a gerrymandered district. What's the impact of this and of the other rulings? Yes, gerrymandering is a big issue when it comes to the new speaker and a lot of other districts. And really, when it comes to the makeup of the entire um, uh, House of Representatives, because the margins are so close. So uh, Mike Johnson is from Louisiana. That is one of the states who had districts that had been deemed illegal due to gerrymandering, racial gerrymandering, but that they were by courts ordered to stay in place for the 2022 election because, as Jill said, uh, they were deemed, even though they were drawn after the 2020 census, that it wasn't enough time to do redistricting or whatever reason uh, one way or the other. But at the end of the day, they were found to be improper gerrymanders, but they were still in place. In Louisiana, in particular, where our current speaker hails from, uh, a court found that there were there are enough Black people in Louisiana, and if you've ever been to Louisiana, you could see this anecdotally, to constitute, uh, to be able to have two of the five districts as districts that uh, are opportunity districts, which is which means that Black people have the opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice. But instead, the Black people are packed into one district so that there can only be one district where they have the opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice. What does a candidate of their choice mean? Well, according to Pew, uh, while Black people have very, very high voter turnout, Black People, Black Americans are the only demographic that regularly have over 50% voter turnout. They tend to vote Republican about 6% of the time. So that's that point that we're making about the difference between a racial gerrymander and a racial one when it comes to Black people. It's a Venn diagram that's a circle. And map drawers know this, so they packed them all into one district. What do you have as a result? Five districts, four of them are white Republican men including Mike Johnson, and one is a Democrat who is Black in Louisiana. A court said, okay, come on. <laughs> like, <laughs> you need to redraw those districts. And the way that they were drawn in Louisiana, it would have endangered perhaps multiple candidates, including uh, Speaker Johnson in that sense. So the, the reason that we have, it, the speaker that we have, is brought to you in part by gerrymandering. The same would have been true for Jim Jordan in Ohio. That, that his old district was gerrymandered and it stayed in place through 2022. It's since been redrawn. But that's another one of the quote-unquote chaos agents that I said it's the reason that uh, the, the speaker, the last speaker was ousted in the first place, Nancy Mace, uh, in South Carolina. Her case is before the Supreme Court right now. It was ruled an illegal gerrymander. The Supreme Court is likely to rule in her favor uh, and in the favor of the Republican map drawer. So this is big. It doesn't just affect people in the South. It affects everybody in the whole country. We have minority rule. And that's part of the reason why we saw the chaos of the last several weeks where we didn't have a speaker at all. There it is. Uh, the End of Democracy, brought to you by the letter G.
Well, let's turn to another tragedy. A 40-year-old reservist with a history of mental health issues killed 18 people in Lewiston, Maine, and injured 13 others in shootings at a bowling alley and a bar. The attack stunned a state of only 1.3 million people that has one of the country's lowest homicide rates, 29 killings in all of 2022. Our hearts go out to the people of Lewiston, but we don't think that's enough. And we want to look at what can be done. Those people are still under a shelter-in-place order as we are recording this while the shooter remains at large. There are a lot of unknown details like the type of gun that he used, the magazine he used. We now think we know where he got it and when, which was before his um, his mental health issues. The shooter made no effort to conceal his identity so we know who he is and that he underwent mental health evaluation in mid-July after he began acting erratically while with his reserve regiment and saying he heard voices telling him to shoot up the National Guard base. Why wasn't Maine's yellow flag law invoked when he got treatment for those mental health issues? And what is that law and how does it differ from red flag laws that I think are a little more common that we've heard of more? So Barb, let's start with what is Maine's yellow flag law? And what does it do and how does it differ from the more common red flag laws? Well, a yellow flag order is a restriction on the ability to possess guns by somebody who has uh, a mental health issue that causes concern. And it requires a court order, but before you can get the court order, it requires some extra steps. I think part of the reason for it comes from Maine's strong history of gun rights, but it requires a finding by a medical professional and the petition has to be filed by a police officer and the person gets a hearing. So the, the medical professional says in their professional opinion, this person is dangerous and should not possess a gun. So it's, it's called yellow because it comes a little bit short of the red flag laws, uh, but it definitely has a few more extra steps in there before a person can be dispossessed of their weapons. So Joyce, let's move from yellow flag laws and what the limits are on that to the broader and more common red flag law. Um, you know, talk about what that law allows and whether all of these laws are uh, require due process and are they constitutional? What evidence is needed? Yeah, so like Barb was saying, the red flag law is sort of a step down from the yellow flag law in this sense. Um, under red flag laws, people are allowed to petition a judge for the temporary confiscation of someone's guns if they're deemed to be either a danger to themselves or a danger to the community. The laws work different in different states. They used to really only exist in a handful of states. But after the 2018 shooting at Marjorie Stoneham Douglas in Florida, they've really proliferated across the country. States vary. Is it a family member who can seek confiscation? Does it have to be law enforcement? You've got to know exactly how it works in every state. But there are two constitutional issues that are raised in connection with these laws. The first is just a pure violation of Second Amendment rights. Although this argument has been used in a couple of different cases, so far it has been a loser in the lower courts. 
But of course, with this Supreme Court, there's no telling how that might play out if the issue in the wrong case reaches the court, because we know that they value guns more than they value people. If you've learned nothing about the Supreme Court from this podcast, that's your clear takeaway. Um, So I am nervous about that. And then there are also possible due process charges. Normally, when your property is taken away from you, you're entitled to notice in a hearing. And perhaps there's a sense that that doesn't always happen as fully as it should when red flag laws are used. So there, we can expect that those laws will be challenged on that basis. Look, the reality is that both of those constitutional concerns can be overcome with smart laws. These are public health, public safety issues. And so routinely, states are capable of doing more in these situations than they can do when that justification doesn't exist. And if there's, you know, any small modest step that we can take to curtail gun violence, we should. This is a small, modest, but effective step. Kim, Jared Golden, who is the U.S. representative from Lewiston, now says he regrets his vote against banning assault weapons and he now supports it. Of course, it makes me wonder why he didn't feel that way after all the previous mass shootings, why it took something in his hometown. But in any event... I'd love you to share your expertise covering gun control measures. Talk about what proponents and opponents of yellow and red flag laws say and why even red flag laws have not been as effective as they could or should be. And maybe also address specifically what you think would make a real difference in terms of what kinds of specific things like controlling the magazine size, waiting periods, all of those kinds of things. If you could address all of those, that would be a great analysis. Yeah, you know, it's always good when someone has a change of heart in the right direction. So I'm going to applaud Golden for that. But at the same time, it's a reminder that in this country, we once had a Congress that on a bipartisan basis passed a uh, assault weapons ban. And now it, it was allowed to expire. And now the way that the political winds have changed that prevent Republicans from thinking they can even consider the most common sense kind of gun reform and that somehow blasphemous to their Second Amendment loving voter base is really, really sad because it has proven to have deadly consequences. I have written a lot about gun control laws as they go up before the Supreme Court or as they've been implemented around the country. One thing about, uh, well, I will say one thing first about yellow flag laws, which as Barb correctly pointed out, require a medical mental health professional to okay and a police official to implement. It's very, very limited, but I want to be very, very careful here in the way we talk about this because research shows that mental health is a very poor predictor of violence. We do not want this turned into a mental health discussion. The very folks who feel beholden or afraid of their voter base because they're afraid that anything you say about gun control will cost them an election will be the first person saying, oh, this is a mental health issue. No, it's not. You know what? Mental health issues happen all across the globe. These kind of mass 
shootings only happen in the United States. That in itself proves, I also just threaded a piece uh, that explained why people who have mental health issues are actually less likely to harm others uh, than others. They may be more likely to harm themselves, which is tragic enough and enough reason to impose greater gun restrictions and why these yellow flag laws are important. But red flag laws that we talked about, even the more liberal laws, the reason that they don't work is people don't know about them or they don't know what to do. They require education. If there is someone who you know who has threatened people who has uh, done things that has shown a violent tendency. And there is a red flag law, law in place, like in places like Massachusetts. People don't know that they can call their police department, that they can call their doctors, that can call someone else and report that person and have a hearing that can determine whether that person can be relieved of their firearms for a period of time. I don't know anything about what happened with this shooter in Maine, but I do know that he was a gun instructor. He was somebody for whom guns was a regular part of his life. Did the people in his life even know that this thing was available to, or, or did they think that taking his guns away was even an option? I don't know. And that's the biggest problem. In terms of what's effective, what we do know from the research that exists is that gun control measures do work, but the ones that are most effective are focused on who has the guns as opposed to what guns are available. So we need to talk about people who have demonstrated um, violent tendencies, people who have, for example, domestic violence uh, protective orders against them. That's the case before the Supreme Court right now, which isn't looking good uh, for the people who want to protect uh, domestic abusers. The number one in, in households where there are guns, those guns are most likely used against the people in that household. So that is something that is common sense in every jurisdiction that should be available. But it, I, I forgive me if I sound emotional because I have dealt with this a lot in terms of the law, in terms of what works, but in terms of what our officials refuse, refuse to pass, that we know what the solutions are right? But it's a matter of will. And I ho- I don't know when we'll get that will. We have talked about these shootings so many times just in the, you know, nearly three years that we've had this podcast. It feels like it's countless and still nothing happened. I thought if nothing changed after Sandy Hook, little babies, little babies in Connecticut, I wasn't sure anything ever would. We've gotten a couple re- uh, reforms since then, but not many. So I would hate to be proven right. Joyce, is there something you want to add on you know, what might be helpful, what might solve the problem? You know, I think we know what will solve the problem. The data shows what will solve the problem. I was a prosecutor when the the ban on assault rifles was in place. We know that it worked. It's a matter of political will. Um, And if the court won't protect people, you know, this, I mean, we've talked ad nauseum about how ridiculous the Supreme Court's gun jurisprudence is. They've decided that the language in the Second Amendment that talks about well-organized militias applies to individuals like Robert Card, the shooter in Lewiston. There's no reason that it should. And we've talked about the fact that the court is protecting all sorts of advanced weaponry, including these high-capacity magazines, assault-style military-grade weapons, like they are the muskets that the founding fathers were familiar with. You know, we have this whole line of court cases 
where this conservative Supreme Court says, we have to go back and think about the intent of the founding fathers and what they were looking at and what they were concerned with. They definitely were not thinking about taking assault-style rifles with, you know, magazines that held 50 or 100 um, rounds at one time and unleashing them on civilian populations. But if the court won't change its jurisprudence, then it's up to Congress to reinstate these kind of bans. And I think to that point, um, Jared Golden, his change of heart in Maine, I think could be important. He is, I think, the most moderate Democrat in Congress, and perhaps he can bring others along with him. Yeah, I mean, I personally think controlling the magazine size and making people have to use muskets with, you know, what the powder that they put in would certainly do a lot to stop mass shootings. And waiting periods with real meaningful background checks, going back to a ban on assault weapons, mental health checks, certainly would make a difference. And let's look at Illinois' red flag law, which is pretty representative of red flag laws, but it didn't stop the Highland Park shooter at last year's July 4th parade. And I think it's worth weighing in on why that didn't work, because he had had an encounter with the police and was known to be dangerous, but nobody invoked the red flag. And so you mentioned that maybe it was because people don't even know about their rights with red flag laws and because it imposes a... um something on a family member that could be awkward for the family member to impose. What do both of you think? Yeah, I think education about these laws, you know, to Kim's point about just the lack of awareness, perhaps something positive that people can do that shouldn't be very controversial would be publicizing the red flag laws and making sure in every state that has them that people know how to use them and that they get support for using them. And I think we need to be very careful, again, in in the way we talk about mental health. There is not a connection between mental health and violence. There is actually a, uh, the evidence that does exist suggests that people with serious mental health issues tend to be less violent toward others, but there is a higher uh, threat of violence against themselves. Again, that's very tragic. But what the standard is, is dangerousness. Somebody who has expressed uh, violence, a violent tendency, which is different than mental health, that's often done through a mental health professional because they're the ones that are hearing it. Um, but yes, I think that knowing this, it could be, it depends on the state, the way the law is written, but it could be a family member, it could be someone who knows them, it can be a domestic partner whether they are married to them or not, again, depends on the statute. I would love a uniform law in this to make it not so state by state. Yeah. Um, all of these are such good suggestions. And I think we need to take this really seriously. I hope people have learned something from our discussing red flag and yellow flag laws. And now we've come to our favorite part of the podcast, which is answering your questions. If you have a question, you can send them to us via email at sistersinlaw at politicon.com. You can send us uh, your questions on thread by tagging 
any one of us sisters or by tagging sistersinlaw.podcast there or use the hashtag sistersinlaw on Twitter, X, whatever we're calling it these days. So our first question is from EZ who asks, when would Trump have been read his Miranda rights in all of the various legal procedures and cases currently ongoing, giving him the Miranda notice in one case cover the other cases? Barb, what do you think of that? Yeah, this is a great question. So it's important to understand what Miranda is. Miranda warnings are given when someone is taken into custody and it covers only custodial interrogation. So if someone's in custody and they're going to be questioned, they're entitled to Miranda warnings. Um, And it may be that Trump did not get any Miranda warnings at all because you may recall that he he self-surrendered. He was with a lawyer during that time and he was processed. But I don't know that he was ever taken into custody and it was certainly never contemplated that he would be questioned. So it's quite possible that he never received his Miranda warnings. Now, I suppose if he did, if it's a matter of routine booking procedure, it might have happened when he came in to give his fingerprints and to be booked. Uh, but it's not necessarily the case because there was never a custodial interrogation. And then your question about whether one case would cover the others, I would say no. Um, if any police entity wanted to question him while he was in custody, they would need to give him their own Miranda warnings. But as I said, I'd be surprised if he got Miranda warnings at all. Our next question comes from Bill, who asks, what does it mean when an attorney for one side asks the judge for permission to treat a witness as a hostile witness? And what makes a witness hostile? This is very Perry Mason. uh, For those who watch Perry Mason, what do you think, Joyce? You know, it's sort of a fun question, though, and I'm going to refer back to something we talked about earlier in the podcast when we talked about Mark Meadows, who only testified for the special counsel because he was forced to by a grant of immunity. So let's just imagine, I'm going to make this up, let's imagine that there's a trial and the prosecution calls Mark Meadows to the witness stand. And on direct, prosecutors have to ask open-ended questions, you know, who did you see? What happened? Where did you go? You can't lead the witness. You have to let them tell their story. Well, let's say that Mark Meadows is not happy about being there to testify. And so he tries to hedge his bets and not really answer the questions or just answer yes or no's when explanation is called for. This is the Perry Mason moment where the prosecutor can turn to the judge and say, Your Honor, may I have permission to treat Mr. Meadows as a hostile witness? And the judge will say yes. That means that Meadows isn't answering the questions, and now the prosecution can treat him like he's a witness who has been called by the defense, and they can cross-examine him. So instead of asking open-ended questions, now they can say, Mr. Meadows, isn't it true that... And he's forced to answer those sorts of questions. It's a fabulous technique that really anyone, but primarily prosecutors, end up using with a very difficult witness who's trying to obstruct the process. Excellent. I love that. Just like I object. I never have to say in my short time practicing law, I never got to say I object in open court and that really that I, I was able to say it in, in I was able to say it in depositions, but it's not the same. It's such a fun thing to do when you can stand up and indignantly smack the desk and say, Your Honor, I object. 
<laughs> All right. So our last Definitely question. Definitely not the same in a deposition. No, it's not. You're just sitting there like, objection. You can answer. Objection. You can answer. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Our last question is from Susan, who says, I love legal fiction. Ooh, literary or thrillers. Who are your favorite authors? I have to admit, Susan, I don't read a lot of legal uh, fiction. I should. Jill, what do you think? Do you read some legal fiction? I, unfortunately, nowadays I read mostly stuff that I need to read for this podcast and appearing on MSNBC. But in the past, I have. And I have three authors that I would recommend, two of whom are currently Chicago residents, and one was, but I think she might have moved to Kansas City. But Scott Turow, who reinvented legal fiction, um, is definitely top of my list of people that I would say you should go out and get all of his uh, legal fiction. Sarah Paresky is another one who writes about a, a, a woman character, and she's terrific. These are easy reads and wonderful. And the third is Gillian Flynn, who did used to live in Chicago and may still, but I'm just not sure about that. Um, she wrote Gone Girl. And I think all of them have really well-written literary styles um, that Scott Turow really is the one who invented. So definitely start with him. All right. I will also download uh, all of those as soon as I am done with Britney's book and deleting all of Justin Timberlake's songs oh, are from you my playlist. That? Oh. It's so good. It's so good. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Barb McQuay, Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkins Store. And remember, you can send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or X them using hashtag sistersinlaw <laughs> or send them to us via threads by tagging us or sistersinlaw.podcast. And please support this week's sponsors, One Skin, Thrive Cosmetics, Calm, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in our show notes. Please support them because they're not only great products, but they help make this show happen. And to keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review because it helps others find the show and tell your friends. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Before we move on, can we please take note that I see that Jill is Brisby's servant in her name on the Zoom and that Joyce is Rejoice, but I have to give it up for Kim this Halloween weekend with Kim Booley Batkins Gore. Pretty nice. All three names with the Halloween Very theme. Good. Well done. Okay. Well done. Although I confess, when girl. I first looked at it really quickly, I saw Kim Booty and thought in my mind, I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. That's funny.